0: hey guys this is hunter levine and thank you for listening to the captain's collective podcast brought to you by skinny water culture hell's bay boatworks turtle box audio coast of sunglasses traeger grills and orvis fly fishing like many of you i've always been drawn to the sea from my early childhood years i remember being fascinated with stories of embarking on large voyages filled with treacherous weather and vicious pirates and encounters that came with the territory of exploring the open ocean. For many, dreams of life at sea remain simply dreams, only lived out on screens or in the pages of a book. But for today's guest, life at sea has been a career and passion. John Dunaway has traveled to over 35 countries captaining large vessels. In today's podcast, John shares how he got started in the merchant marine industry, his love for photography in the outdoors, and how he's learned to remove blockages or obstacles that we all experience in order to pursue the next trip of a lifetime. John also shares with us some tips on planning and boat navigation, as well as a recent trip he took to Devil's River with our friends at Turtle Box Audio. I hope that you enjoy our time together. Thank you for listening. This is the Captain's Collective.
1: I'll say it's anything you choose, I think it picks you, you know, it's genetic.
0: Let everything else stop in the world and just be quiet. And then it's amazing where your mind goes at that point um, and where it doesn't go. And sometimes this that quiet space is, is what we need, and especially in this day and age. If you have a fly rod in your hand, it's this tool that takes you to beautiful places, you meet hopefully wonderful people, and it's just this cherry on top of this outdoor adventure. When the fish is coming, that shot within a shot, that timer start. Beep beep beep, 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 beep,
1: beep, beep. No one else knew anything anyway, and you just might definitely making it up as you're going along. But So, what Grandpa and Dad would tell me is like, all right, where's the old big trout laying out there? Where's his shaving cream on the water? Where's he been shaving this morning? At? So, look for his shaving cream on the water, and that's where he's going to be.
0: Hey, John, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast and making some time to sit down. I'm really interested just to talk about the type of ship that you captain and some of the experiences that you've had in life. It's certainly a lot for us to, to dive into. But uh, before we get into all that, I'd love for you just to give us a little bit of background about the boat that you captain, uh, because it's very different than every other guest I've had so far. Just an overview of kind of what that looks like.
1: Yeah, Hunter, appreciate you having me on here. So uh, I went to see... For 10 years, I went to Maritime College to get started. Kings Point, Merchant Marine Academy. Most people don't even know that it's it's one of the five federal, just like you know Army, Navy, uh, Air Force, Coast Guard. And then spent four years there. One year of that, I went to sea as a cadet, just working with people that work on a normal ship. And then spent a decade at sea, just got to hit like 35 different countries, be gone three, four months at a time. And at the time, those were just, you know, they were smaller ships in my realm they're like 300 feet by 60 foot beam so nothing huge and nowadays um i'm piloting stuff in and out of the port of houston we're moving up to 1100 feet you know about a hundred thousand ton ships so wow a little change you know the dynamics are the same obviously a ship is a ship um they all have different characteristics and how they react as water changes but Whether you're at sea on a 300-foot ship or you're at sea on, like, you know, the Ever Given that everybody knows about now, uh, (laughs) things are are mostly the same. You know, work is the same. It's just a matter of how much manpower you have and and the realm of where you're going that changes stuff. So, yeah, that's my background. I don't take uh, just a handful. We got a couple people on board, and that's it.
0: Yeah, it's – I mean, when I look at photos of these ships, it's just absolutely – incredible to think that something so large can be navigated and can you know move around the world really and and it's kind of interesting because I think everybody has seen large ships and you know seen photos of the ships but for most people it's kind of a world that we we get a lot of goods and you know they're an important part of our world obviously but they don't know very much about how everything works and all the moving pieces and how people captain them for you. How did you get into doing that? Is that something you wanted to do your whole life or how did you find that?
1: No. So, I mean, the Dunaway side of my family has been in the maritime industry for like four or five generations. Um, uh, like early arrivals to Texas, they were boat builders up in the Trinity river, like building little wooden sloops and then great grandparents owned a uh, dredge business so they had like little tugs and barges and my grandparents de- dealt with that my dad ended up working on harbor tugs and going to sea for most of his career and uh, my mom asked me one evening you know I'll never forget like, what are you gonna do when you grow up I'm like mm, beats me I guess we'll figure it out here you know but I'm not gonna work in an office it just wasn't my gig and <laughs> she was like you ever thought about doing what your dad does like I get paid and you know work on ships and be on the water all the time because Post or pre nine eleven, you know I could go to work with them. Like we could climb on and off tugboats, we could go down to the ships and see all that stuff and do it. Uh, so the moment that conversation came up, I've never looked back. I'm just like man, this just fit me inherently. I was drawn to it, and yeah, still never looked back. I just I'm on my off time right now. I went and worked. You know, moved a couple ships. They needed some extra help, and I'm fortunate that it doesn't feel like a job. Like I just thoroughly enjoy it. I'm just captivated by ships. I'm captivated by what goes on all around them. And that brings me to where I am today. And hopefully I just keep that mentality and keep rolling with it.
0: Yeah. It's uh, the fact that you mix in your photography too, I think really pulls a lot of people into just how incredible it really is that, that we're able to do this. We live in a world that can move so many thousands of tons of goods um, through the water. Now, tell me a little bit more about the the college you went to and kind of how that works.
1: Yeah, so I went to Kings Point in short. Uh, formal name is the United States Merchant Marine Academy because it's in Kings Point, New York, and it's literally one of the five federal academies. Like I was saying earlier, you know, West Point, Annapolis, you know, Air Force, Coast Guard, and the 5th B in the Merchant Marine Academy because... To most like uh, I guess, lack of knowledge, the military doesn't actually have their own logistical arm. I mean, in a way they do, but, you know, they're moving planes and so forth, but bulk goods are moved by the Merchant Marine. Really was highlighted during World War II when they were pumping out those Liberty ships and they had to get all the supplies over there as well as the troops. You know, at the time, airfare wasn't the way it is today, and so to move that kind of mass amount of goods, I mean, you look at a D-Day invasion, you know, to get all the supplies to get the ships fueled to get ammo to this day is all moved by a commercial arm of this, you know, sweet government. And then outside of that, there's the commercial. So in the government decided, Hey, the U S government is like, man, we need to train people. We need to train people in a formal matter and get them pumped through here because we need people to move these ships. Otherwise this war effort is not happening. And that's where the Merchant Marine Academy really came from and has stayed there ever since, because without it, I mean, the military's SOL. If they can't get the carriers, you know, jet fuel sent over to them or their supplies, their goods, like, you know, they're not growing a garden on board. This stuff's being delivered. And a lot of those ships are at sea for months at a time moving around. And so that's really where uh, the Merchant Marine Academy fits its billet and stays stays in power. Uh, so went up there, it's fully regimented. You know, you get to shave your head wear the Navy uniform, do four years of school there. Everything's structured. You live in barracks, all that kind of good stuff. And a year of that we spend at sea, which is different than a state maritime academy. You know, they'll go on training cruises with their school. It's a little different. But us, they just send us out on a commercial ship. You know, we kind of get a pick. am like, man, I'd like to go to the Far East for these four months. And they look for an American ship, and they throw you on it and off you go, you know, it's like you and one other buddy on a crew of 14 to 20 people, and it's not a school, you know? It's a job for these people, and you're there to learn what you can, but also throw down your weight and help out just another just another member of the crew, so. Wow.
0: It seems like learning to to run a ship of that size would be really, I think, daunting for most people. I mean, that's just a very intimidating thing to do. What, what does the training process look like? Like big picture wise, what do they first kind of start you with and how do you get to where you're actually running the whole ship? I mean, how does that kind of segue into
1: itself? Yeah. So you go to school for four years, you know, you're constantly taking, you, you go two routes. You're either going to be an engineer And be down below working on the engine and so forth. Or you're going to be what we call deckies. And that's going to do all the navigation, the cargo, the ballast. And both pivotal to the operation. It's Just a matter of what you want to do. But for me, I wanted to be up on the bridge navigating out in the sun. I didn't want to work down in the hole. But, you know, you take your uh, plenty of maritime classes. You're teaching navigation. And it really starts with basic seamanship. You know, can you tie a carrick pin? Can you rig a bosun's chair, you learn how to splice line, and do all these things because you're going to come in as an entry level, you're a cadet, but you're pretty much, you're not even an able-bodied seaman, so for people that don't understand it, let's say in the military you would have officers and enlisted, and in the merchant marine you have officers slash licensed people, and you have what we call unlicensed, They're, they do the grunt work, but They're very sophisticated in what they do. You know, that's their realm of just like enlisted people in the military, just different structure of learning. So, man, they just teach you the basics. They throw you out there in the real world. You start seeing all this stuff, implementing it, and eventually you get out of school there with a third mate's license. And that's the difference is that, you know, you work on a smaller boat. uh, People will have captain's license, and and I don't shit on anybody for that. People will laugh, but there's a big difference between – you know, if you're going to captain a boat in a harbor, you know, like a party boat or something versus being a master on a ship that's going around the world, there's just life-saving components, there's structural stability of the ship, there's maintenance that goes into it. It's just, you're running an entirely different operation, and so you don't just take one test and get it. You get the third mate, you're going to work for about two years, build up sea time, and then you could advance to a second mate, and then... The second mate really takes over the navigation stuff. Their job is laying out charts, making sure all your publications are up to date. Um, you know, when a voyage is passed on, they're the ones pulling everything out, planning it. Hey, this is how, how much distance we got to cover and this is how much fuel we're probably going to need. And that's his specialty. And then eventually you will take a bunch of extra classes, another two years plus. And you become a chief mate. And just because you have the license doesn't mean you get that job, but nonetheless, that's the rough time frame. Chief mate is what people would call, I guess like a first mate. We don't do that in the U S merchant Marine. So chief mate runs, he's in charge of all cargo, all stability and all the maintenance on deck. And then ultimately you spend another two, three years there. You get the sea time that you need and you can get an unlimited master's license. And then you can be captain on any size ship in the world. And the captain really oversees everything. So you've got a third mate, a second mate, a chief mate, and they stand a navigational watch, right? So four four hours on, eight hours off. The captain doesn't stand a watch, right? He's running everything in his office. He's coming up and overseeing. He's just like a CEO at the end of the day. He's responsible Mm -hmm. for everything and ultimately either has the answer or has to answer for it. And you're hoping that you build out, you know, a strong crew that you trust that you're not double checking all of their work. You will oversee it. They have a question and you're going to review it. But at the end of the day, if you're, I always say, if you have to babysit all your positions and check all their work, then you don't have a crew. You might as well just be by yourself. Wow. So for me, um, I guess it was about eight years after I got out of school when I got my first captain's job. And then finished up last two years doing that before I was fortunate to get into the pilots, which is a different realm.
0: Yeah, that's a that's a long time frame. And one of the things I was curious about was, you know, so when you're young and you're doing your year at sea, you know, and you're for you kind of going through this this pipeline of becoming a captain, or becoming a master. Were there any moments where you doubted it and you thought, man, this is just this is crazy. I, I don't think I want to do this for, for the rest of my life.
1: Yeah, definitely. Uh, I got out of school. I was pretty pumped about everything and ended up popping on a chemical tanker, which wasn't what I was really looking for. Actually, in short, a buddy called me up. I was gonna, planning to take off three, four months after I been out, you know, got out of college and, and then go to sea. And he's like, man, I need somebody to come relieve me for like two weeks and the ship's going to be here in Galveston. I was like, yeah, sure. You know, I'll, I'll come join this company, work for two weeks and then bounce. Um, and, and I get on the ship and the captain's like, what are you talking about? Two weeks. You signed up for 60 days. I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. They tell <laughs> him, they told me this was a two week gig, you know, <laughs> like I thought I was just helping my buddy out and come to find out the, the company had actually sent me to a different ship. It wasn't even the ship he was on and I got full on, you know, third mate billet was like, Oh, well, I guess I'm here. Like, I'm not going to quit. So Um, those ships, you know, ran around the US. So you're really only out of cell phone service for like five days at the longest. And my wife, who was my girlfriend at the time, she really wasn't feeling it. Just like, (laughs) you know, just like being by herself, having to take care of stuff at the house, it just kind of overwhelmed her. And that made it a bit of a struggle where I started to consider, man, like I really loved her and which one's more important. Uh, It, it, so it made things difficult for a while. And then I was fortunate enough after a year and a half, a buddy called me up. He was trying to get me on these different kinds of ships that were going all over the world. And he's like, dude, this is for you. Like we knew each other in college and he was like, you got to come over here. So I finished up 60 days. This office had called me and it was like a Friday I was going to get off and the office. He was like, listen, go home chill out till Monday, the ship's in Houston, and then sign on. And I signed on for another 100, I think it was 109 days or something. And my wife wasn't exactly thrilled. And on that ship, (laughs) I got email twice a week. There's absolutely no self-service. I mean, once you leave, you know, five, six miles offshore, that's the end of it. And in foreign countries, you know, you don't have cell phones and stuff. The roaming is so expensive. So those first two years made it really tough. Of just dealing with the, man, I'm missing out on all this stuff at home. Like, buddies are throwing yeah. parties. And and I felt out of it, right? Because I had I had left high school. I had a ball in high school. I went to college, and I left everybody. You know, I developed different friendships and kept all mm-hmm. those friends from high school. But it was different. You know, you were gone, totally detached. You are mm-hmm. living this regimented lifestyle. I had been living, you know, free willy and all my buddies are in college, you know, having the college experience. And then you get out of school Mm. and start shipping out for months at a time. And at that age, I just felt like I was missing a bunch. And one day I was off the coast of Brazil. I was working out on the back on the stern. I remember looking over just being like, dude, this is gorgeous. Like I don't have to be here. I can literally Uh choose on the next port to get off. If this is not the realm that I want to be in, like nobody's making me be here. This is my choice. And in about a 5 minute period i totally changed my perspective on on everything i feel or maybe it was just always there and realized how much i truly enjoyed being out there and wow the rest of my career was just like i loved going to work you know i didn't want to leave there was obviously like man's bummer you know my wife's gotta yeah. go we didn't have kids but i loved going i i just thrived in it personally not necessarily professionally I may have. I mean, I guess I did okay, but yeah. yeah. There was just so many components to it. I loved the physical aspect. I loved being places where other people didn't get to go. You know, you go to 35 different countries, very established places to quote-unquote shitholes of the world. I mean, places that are economically and fundamentally well underdeveloped. And even in that, You learned something from everything. I met some of the greatest characters in those places that were struggling by, you know, Mm. Western standards. And that taught me so much perspective. So, yeah. In short, I went from a period where I definitely hated it. I also had somebody I worked for. I was a junior officer and total jerk. Uh, I've just made life on board miserable for everybody. And uh yeah, I accepted that that's where I wanted to be. And then I accepted to the other thing with him that man, I would kill him with kindness. I was like what he says and why he yells at people like has no effect on what I'm really doing. Like that's his problem. Something's going on with him. He has to deal with. Yeah. Man, he could give me the craziest task. I'm like, "Yes, sir." And I come back and be like, "I got it all done." <laughs> Dude, and it, man, you could just see him almost like smoke coming out of his ears cuz he wanted to get under <laughs> your skin. And once I figured out yeah. that I didn't have to let that happen, it was like game over. Wow. T- take me a little bit. Take me back
0: to that moment of kind of looking out. You said you were in Brazil. Is that where you were when when you kind of had that realization that that you really wanted to keep doing it? You were looking out over the stern of the boat, and
1: yeah, we were. We were actually had left Brazil. We were headed back towards Houston. We had been on a run where we went down there. Did uh. Two spots in Brazil and one in Argentina, and we're coming back up. And, yeah, for whatever reason, I was just working out. Didn't seem like any different of a day. And it was just perfect sunset looking over. You know, because you can't see Brazil. We're too far off the coast, but nonetheless. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, sunsets, killer sunset. I was working out and just taking it all in, all by my lonesome back there, doing what I wanted to do. In the moment you know I just put in like a 12 14 hour day here I am working out and just felt totally refreshed and everything like man I can't ask for anymore like I'm healthy I got a good paying job and I'm fulfilled every day doing this stuff even when it's crazy physical like, I I thrived on that personally and just accepted this is truly where I want to be so all the other details were just getting in the way I was letting that stuff get in my head and believing it. But in reality, most of it was just a problem that I was creating for myself and just pushed it out of the way. And off we went.
0: Yeah. I think a lot of people kind of struggle, especially it seems like, you know, I'm, I'm a uh, 28 years old and about to be 29. And a lot of people, my age kind of, they've gotten to a career and they've gotten to a path. And then like the honeymoon phase for lack of a better phrase starts to, wear off. And that I think one of the things that maybe makes it even more challenging is with social media and the fact that we just know so much about, or at least we think we know, I should say so much about how other people live and other jobs and, you know, all this other stuff. I think sometimes it can be really hard to, to just, I, I like the word that you used, accept, but just kind of to really wrestle with what do I want to do? And, you know, how am I going to, to live my life from here on? And for you, like when you kind of made that real realization, this is what I want to do. I want to make this work. How did, how did things change for you? W- were there, were there ways that you worked different or, or lived different after that?
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, pr- prior to that, I would wake up. It's like, man, I'm a little tired. It's, you know, 345 in the morning. I'm going up to work You know, maybe you want to boohoo a little bit. You're thinking, Alright, well I got a couple hours up here on watch and that dickhead's gonna show up and he's <laughs> gonna be in a you know a terrible mood and it's just gonna start and the whole day is just kind of stressful. You're like, man, you're constantly juggling can I appease this guy in any way? And the, the morale on the crew could feel it. Everybody was like that. Just like, well, you know, you're walking on thin ice. Like, when's he gonna freak out? And it wasn't enjoyable at all. So it made everything feel terrible. Like, The same task that, you know, a day later, when I just brushed it all off, the task wasn't difficult. I just I let all that burden hang on me. And so everything was just kind of miserable. You're like, I don't want to be doing this. Why do I have to do this? Well, I accepted that this is where I want to be. And Hmm. everything that man, this may not be fun. You gotta climb down in a ballast tank. You gotta change out this reach rod we're going to be down there for three hours in the dark and it's hot and you're like soaking wet and you're probably going to leave the wrong tools up there. So you're going to have to climb up, you know, four flights of vertical stairs and then walk back aft and go dig around. It's like, Oh, again, you could boohoo about it all day. But at the end of the day, like this is the task at hand. This is what has to be done to keep this ship going. And this is what has to be done to fulfill my position on the ship. And if I don't want to do it, then get off. Don't be here because it has to be done so either do it or get out of the way because moaning and groaning about stuff that's just it's not questionable whether it's going to be finished or not it's going to be done it to me is meaningless you're just wasting everybody's time and you have to decide that for yourself for me whatever it was just that realization in that moment that worked and once i accepted that that this is just the task um yeah it just made life easy he's like it just is what it is. Like the sun's going to come up tomorrow and you're probably going to have to go to work or you're probably going to have to fix something or do whatever it is that you do in any walk of life. Mm. So yeah, it totally changed everything. Nothing feels like yeah. a, like a burden. It just is what it is. Yeah,
0: That's, that's an amazing story too of just kind of coming to that, to that realization. And, uh, you know i definitely i have a lot more questions about navigating big ships but i also know with you that life off the boat uh, you love the outdoors and you love photography and hunting and fishing how did you how did you get into hunting and fishing
1: yeah that i grew up doing as well my dad was a hardcore fisherman and him and my mom would go out and fish a bunch and so we spent a lot of time running down to rockport uh, for the first couple of years. And then, you know, that's like three hours from Houston. And then we started venturing further South to South Padre. But I mean, we were loaded up in the car like on a Friday, the car would be packed suburban, you know, my parents would grab us from school, if not early. And we'd hightail down South and fish all weekend. So I was immersed in it, loved it. Mm. And then eventually burned out of that. was like, man, mm. I don't like all summer we'd be in South Padre. It's, Again, it's incredible. Looking back on it, you're like, "Man, what a crybaby." Me and my brother I'm like, "I don't <laughs> want to get up at the crack of dawn as a, you know, a 9-year-old or a 10-year-old and mm. sleep on the boat and have breakfast tacos watching the sun come up and fishing the sidewalk with a little popping cork and catching all the trout you could ever imagine." Uh. Mm. It's like I just want to lay around and maybe watch some TV this morning and we want to go to the beach at lunch. Uh. Mm. And so I let that I really got out of fishing for a long long time and I'm just now really getting back into it and enjoying it for what it is and Mm -hmm. I I don't like to do things mediocre like if I get into Mm -hmm. it I get consumed with it because I I want to know why I'm doing it and like how to do it and I just don't like just putting my feet in the water barely so Mm -hmm. at the same time my dad was a big surfer my mom loved being outside like the beach was their thing so if we weren't fishing, we were on the other side of the island, like, playing in the water. And once we got a little bit older, my parents would go fish and leave us at the house. We were running crab traps, and, you know, we were, like, paddling kayaks <laughs> up and down. You know, nowadays people would be like, these kids were just wandering all around South Padre Island by themselves. Like, <laughs> yeah, guess what? And, and we're totally fine. So they'd come back, you know, we'd have a cooler full of blue crabs, or we had caught a bunch of fish off the dock, or we had just been swimming and running around with the dogs, you know, cutting our feet on oyster shells and all kinds of silly stuff. <laughs> just being, I guess it's because my parents gave us that freedom. Uh, mm. You know, like how bad could you guys possibly hurt yourselves? You know, give us a couple of rules, like don't venture down on the main street and stay around this area, you know, be back. And that just let our curiosity run wild. And, and then we figured out like, Hey, there's oyster shells around this bin. Like let's not play in there barefooted. That's not working out. Um, or hmm. you know, whatever it may be like, man, the pinchers on this crab, get a hold of your hands. They hurt like hell. So let's figure out how to pick them up or let's get a bucket. Let's problem solve. Let's not dump them on the ground and try to grab them and get them in the cooler. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, like things that in the moment I never considered. And even now I'm like talking about thinking like, Oh, hmm. they were teaching us to problem solve, to deal with stuff. And by leaving us alone, we pursued what we wanted. You know, they didn't say, Mm. you have to go out there do it. There was a TV. We could have sat inside the motel room and and done that. There was no pool. But we just loved being outside, I guess, because we were, again, brought up around it and just Mm -hmm. came second nature. And then that led to, you know, my dad telling us stories. I would go to my great-grandmother's house, and she had a gun cabinet in there always locked. I remember getting a BB gun, getting to shoot it when we go over there. And it was like my grandfather's shotguns, and then so my dad started telling me stories about duck hunting, and the first time he took him, and how when his brother shot it, he had a younger brother pop back, you know, busted his nose wide open, and it was like, I can't wait to try this. Let's go. <laughs> uh-huh. So, you know, I'm playing with a BB gun, and fast forward, I'm like 12, we start going hunting, and yeah, and then the duck hunting thing just consumed me, and I've been pursuing that for 20 plus years now. Yeah. I think,
0: you know, hearing stories of kids and how they fall in love with the outdoors, and I talk a lot about that on this show, partly because um, I'm a dad, but also partly because I think that there's something um, in us all, like even thinking about, you know, traveling to 35 different countries and getting to explore and be on these adventures. You know, when you watch a little kid, I mean, you could drop a little kid off in 100 yards of shoreline, and to them, that's that's the world. You know, that's, that is 35 countries large of a, you know, place to explore and to get out and see what's under this rock or what's living in this grass. And I think there's something that a lot of people— um, get disconnected from that that desire to adventure has that always been something that you've fought for in your life just wanting to get out and see new things and
1: and explore yeah i think so but touching on your point you're you're absolutely right like i watch my own kids you know i have got a 5 and a 2 year old and you can get them all these toys you can get them all these gadgets they now have a sandbox and there's a pile of rocks we've been doing some construction stuff in the backyard and they're just as content running, chasing each other around, digging in the sand, throwing rocks, you know, roaming back into the woods. Like I was clearing some drainage and half they came wanting to follow me because to them it is a new world. It's exploration. And I see just what you said. Nobody told them to do it. They're just inherently curious. And I think hmm. people grow up You know, different people have different walks of life. That doesn't fit for everybody. They might not want to do that. I'll be like, That is silly. Why would I ever want to go wander off in the woods and so forth and be dirty? Um, but I think too, what shows do really well on TV. Like people don't sit around and watch Anthony Bourdain sit in his hotel room and watch TV, right? They were (laughs) enthralled because he was wandering places that are parts unknown, you know? He was Mm -hmm. He was trying foods that he never had. He was wandering into alleys and meeting people he had never seen. And it's like, what drives people to that? They're curious inherently. But I think that mm-hmm. if there's a fear factor that holds them back from not venturing outside of that comfort zone. But again, they're all watching the stuff that people are that have broken down those walls are doing. And that's what captivates them. So yeah, I think it's there for all of us. It's just a matter of, can you push that that blockage out of the way and go do it for yourself yeah I I couldn't agree more I actually had I
0: I saved uh, a caption from an Instagram post that you had shared and I thought it was really good and I just kind of wanted to hear you explain this a little bit more because I thought there was really a lot here to to unpack it it's a photo and it says at what point Does that take a turn from being playful to a stark reminder life is passing by? Is there a line in the sand delineating one from another? I can't imagine so. It's a gray area as is much of life. says, don't be so damn serious with yourself that the freedom of being a carefree child runs away, leaving a freight train out for checking the next box with no real end in sight. Just because you don't always need to be so damn serious is far from a crutch for not achieving your ambitions. All of the excuses in the world will not bring substance to reality like a magician. So ditch the hot air. work hard, play hard, look at yourself as the only reason for any shortcomings. Be assured of the achievements took many or be assured the achievements took many others to get there too. Um, I thought that was just really well worded and kind of tied into a little bit of what we were talking about. Could you just kind of elaborate a little bit more on what point you were trying to
1: drive home there? Man, sometimes, when I hear people, I'm like I wrote that. Are you sure? I think I blacked out during the middle of it. <laughs> <laughs> I just get. I all-
0: probably didn't get all the inflections right, you know. <laughs> uh, no.
1: Yeah, and I don't even remember what the context of, of writing that is. You know, sometimes I'll see something that'll just kind of set my mind off on a path. But mm-hmm. it's it's going into all of that that you know you go somewhere and somebody says, "Man, I, I don't forget." I was duck hunting this year with a guy, and he said we had this joke going. He carries it all the time. He says, man, must be nice. You hear people say that. Oh, you know, just like you're saying, they look on social media. like, Must be nice. Those people got to go camping there. Must be nice. Those people got to travel over there. And look, there are financial constraints that don't let people do certain things. I get it. But in the background of a lot of it, the people you're seeing, you're seeing the highlights. And it's like we were just talking about. They're making the choice to go out and do it like man when was the moment right to you know pack up and go to chile and wander around for 18 days you know mm. uh, people will be hesitant i don't know about the country i think it's unsafe and but bo- there's a million excuses why not and when you ask the people that did go do it they didn't stop to answer all of it they're like i figured it out along the way i just this is where i need to go and i think that you know short of being philosophical about it is that that mm. you have the choice and yeah, you've got to find out your financial means that may limit certain aspects of it, but you can travel pretty cheap. You know, obviously mm-hmm. COVID's is making it a little difficult right now and that too shall pass. But then don't put these, don't put those blockages up. Like if mm. you want to go see it, if you really think it's that interesting, then pick up and go like a plane mm. ticket is going to cost you far less than you think. And in in the end, I always say that yeah, you've got to save up money and you've got to have stuff in the end so that you're not living. like By the end, you're not being miserable and stressful chasing that. But Mm -hmm. if you're going to remember all these pennies that you have piled up versus all these things, when I retire, I'm going to go do all this. No, you're not. You're going to be too old to do that. You're not going to have the same ambitions. And then you're going to read books about people that did it and you're going to watch TV shows about people that did it. And you're going to lay oh. around and spend hours and hours dreaming about, what if I had just done that? Well, guess what? You can. And some things have mm. to be in moderation. You just need yeah. to make the decision. And it doesn't have to be around the clock. Like, obviously, there's some people that live out of a van. And there's some people that just uh, you know, wander lost around the globe. That's not for everybody, and that doesn't fit the billet. But, hey... Why don't you go knock out one dream trip that you have this year? And it doesn't have to be crazy exotic. I mean, the U.S. is an incredible country with the wildest landscapes. We have amazing national parks. There's stuff in your own backyard that you probably haven't even realized because people are so busy to stop and just absorb it. So mm-hmm. find that one spot, get up, and go. And leave all the excuses. Because when you get back, I bet a bunch of those excuses that you would written down, that would be one for somebody. Write down a bunch of excuses about your trip while you're hesitating. Fold them, put them on your desk, and go on the trip. And when you come back, answer them. And see if any of them, how many of them actually came to fruition. Because a lot of it, it's in our own head. We put put up those blockages. So that's my short encouragement. Just, man, go do it. Work hard. Live hard. You know, that's it. Yeah. No, I think that's
0: great. I I love what you said, too, about you know, when, when was the time right for them? And I think that, you know, that's a huge encouragement to people just to, I think we get all these questions and then even interviewing different people who have done all these different cool kind of experiences, you know, sometimes you ask them a question and they're like, exactly like you said, I never, I I don't know the answer. I just did it. I never answered the question. I just went and did it. Right. And, uh, you know, I think that's just, we can get in our head and we can, when we tend to think that we're a lot more important, than what we really are, you know, like to to different things, like, you know, whether it's certain work obligations or, uh, you know, social obligations with friends and family. And, you know, we think that if we were to go away for a week or to take two weeks off and go explore national park or go on a fishing trip or whatever, that the world would just fall apart because somehow we're in the center of it, holding everything together. And so, you know, I, I think that's a great encouragement to people just to, I I, I think even what you said literally write down all those questions and go do it and then come back and see you know were these even the right questions to ask or were these just kind of smoke screens I was putting up to stop myself from going and chasing this down speaking of all that I'd love to hear too because you just took a trip with uh so Turtle Box is one of the sponsors of this podcast incredible group of guys Yep. absolutely like phenomenal product too I've I don't know. This is not a a plug. This is just me being genuine. I don't know that anybody has created a product like that and executed it so well out the gate as far as like the battery length, the waterproof, it's rugged, like it's the real deal. Um, And I saw that you had partnered up with those guys and went on a, a trip to Devil's River. I'd love just to hear about that trip and kind of what that experience
1: was like. Yeah. I mean, that trip, I think, embodies so much of what they built that product for, not even knowing you know they live that lifestyle they love all those kind of things Uh, all four of them awesome I've known them for several years now we've done some other fun things dove hunts Uh, they've been over here to the house for some little shindigs we've thrown and so when this came up like man this is truly a trip of a lifetime my wife hates that line because I use it all the time (laughs) But it's a trip of a lifetime. She's like, you can't keep using that excuse for all of these things. Like,
0: <laughs> I say opportunity. I have an opportunity.
1: There you go. I'm, that's what I'm, the wording I'm going to use. So this oppor- yeah, She's going to start hating that too, though. Yeah. yeah. Then I'll just talk to somebody else. We'll find a new word. Uh, so, yeah, Devil's River out here in West Texas, Del Rio area. It's like 38 miles of truly secluded... Pristine water. It's coming out of the bubbling out of the springs. It's literally pouring out of the cliffside, replenishing this place. And you just, it's in the middle of nowhere. You know, it gets that name, the Devil's River, because that country is like rolling through hell. I mean, it's rocky. It doesn't get much rain. So everything's super dry and dusty. The plants are all sharp. You know, everything is rough. <laughs> And so to imagine, even in by car, you know, it took us an hour, pretty much an hour and a half from where we left the vehicles to get down to this river. I mean, absolutely caked in dust to get there. And I don't want to give away everything, but because they're going to put together this awesome video of it. And we got down there and you could like, is it over that ridge? Is it over that ridge? It just seemed to keep going. You're like, where is this thing going to pop up? And then <laughs> there it was. And you would think that you're, looking at some water in the Bahamas because down to 15 feet easy. It's just crystal clear like water that comes out of your tap and there's limestone channels and there's grass growing and the cliffs are up around it, at least in most sections. And guess what? You don't hear a single person. There's for the first two days. I mean, you don't see a single house. There's no dwellings anywhere. There are no people showing up. There's no freeway within, you know, God knows how many miles. You're truly in nature, taking it in. This place is unobstructed from when it first started bubbling out of the ground. And the state does a great job at it. You know, they limit the permits. And I don't know exactly how many permits they give away each day or for periods of time. But again, we were a group of 12 and we didn't see anybody else. Uh, wow. I, we saw like three guys the first day. I should, I should take that back. But they were passing through. And then the rest of our time on the mm-hmm. river, there was nobody like floating by with you. you we paddling up. It just, you pack up all your gear. You better make sure it's sturdy like that, like that turtle box. Um, <laughs> you know, packed almost all our stuff in Yeti Pangas and everything, coolers, because we rolled kayaks. You know, you're getting splashed while you're paddling, but again, going down rapids, you're porting the falls, uh, you're getting stuck in some of the rapids, you know, there's water piling over the boat, you think you're going to flip it over, broke several rods, and it was just all part of the adventure of yeah, being with these other guys, building that camaraderie, and just having discussions, discussions about being parents, discussions about like travel like that, you know, hmm. talk to some of the guys that, hey, they've been taking their kids camping since they were like two years old. And I've got my own two year old that we're like, man, we're not going to tent camp because you know, he, he just, he can't go hiking that long. And it just kind of makes, you know, some difficulties. Guess what? I put up my own block. My wife and I, and I came home. Was like, dude, this is silly. We've been giving ourselves excuses why we can't do it with him. There is no excuse. Other people do it all the time. Like pack hmm. them up and go. When Harper was a year and a half old, we took an RV trip, we rented a little cruise America and did an 18 days out all around the West, several, the national parks and hikes with her. Like we didn't put those walls up at that time. We just went and did it. So, you know, I fall into my own little blockage from time to time. You Mm -hmm. get too complacent, but, uh, the camaraderie of those guys, the extra people that were there, friends of theirs, a class pristine water. You know, we were, Fishing for smallmouth, largemouth, all kinds of little perch, some gar. Didn't hook up any gar. I don't think that anybody got a largemouth. Got a couple smallmouth, upwards of three pounds, ton of little perch. And paddle all day, be in the sun, dive off and swim, find a little pool, you know, in the corner, get up in the reeds, throw fly rods when the wind wasn't howling, throw spinners. If it was it was truly triple the lifetime not just an opportunity <laughs> yeah
0: yeah that's that sounds absolutely incredible i'll put i'll put some links in the blog post just to so people can see some of the content maybe the video whenever that's released i'll make sure that's in the blog post too um but yeah i i think that you know especially going out with a group of guys or going out with your family there's just so much bonding that happens over those trips you know of course it's great to catch fish and to see those places, I think maybe even just a part of it is that, you know, you just remove so many distractions and daily routines that are important, but can take away, you know, what, what, types of, you know, so you guys fish, you fly fish, you, you do some spin and tackle. What, what, what all types of stuff did you guys do out there too? Did you guys, I'm guessing you guys cooked a lot of good food. I would, I would imagine.
1: Yeah. So we used, so they booked it all. They were working with Kudu TV and I kind of partnered up on this deal. And so we had a uh, Charlie angel. He's a guy that does some big Ben stuff and does that. And we did use a guide at, I don't know how you would do it solo, especially the first time. And he did a great yeah. job, right? Like just the access, the logistics of it in and out. I mean, it's an hour and a half down a dusty dirt road, down several locked gates. Like, I don't know. And again, there's nobody hanging out like, Hey, could we come up through your property? Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> So, yeah, he did the logistics, um, posted up the first night, you know, charcoal fire, did fajitas, cut up tons of bell peppers and onions, sauteed them all over, you know, this fire and some guacamole and just had awesome little fajita meal hanging out there. Sun was going down behind us. We were camped out right on this rapid and just, Mm. man, ate, bullshitted, you know, just kind of rinsed off the, the dust from the, the drive-in and the time we had spent fishing that afternoon. Next morning woke up, killer breakfast. And he did, Charlie did a great job cooking these meals. Um, and the same thing. And then you would paddle all day and during the day, you know, just everybody wolfing down some beef jerky, trading out like, you know, dried meat snacks they had brought. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, you're just like, we had a bunch of ranch riders and we were, you know, crushing these beverages refresh ourselves uh and then just keep going you know stopping and fishing and then in the evening he did a like a pork loin one night with like whoa I mean elevating the camping game on a especially when you're camping out of or traveling out of kayaks in a canoe for three days three nights and Mm -hmm. you're not getting replenished you know to have all this stuff like man this is a pretty sweet deal
0: (laughs) Uh, it's, it's, it does sound like a, a great trip. I hope to get over there and see it sometime. I think that I have a long list of things I want to do and see in Texas and looking at getting out there next year. So pretty excited about that opportunity. I'd love just to transition. I got a long list of yeah, rapid fire questions. Um, just because, you know, you're a pretty, pretty interesting guy and, uh, got a lot of different Ooh, categories in that, here. But, all right. Shoot with them. Well, You can't, you can't, if someone calls you interesting, you can't, like, it's not, it's not interesting to, to affirm it, you know, you got (laughs) to kind of downplay it, so (laughs) right on par. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So, you know, obviously a big part of, uh, you just mentioned a trip. Now you didn't run logistics on this past trip uh, to Devil's River, but, you know, being a captain, large vessel, lots of people, there's a lot of logistics. Could you just give some tips on, let's translate this over to kind of hunting and fishing trips what are some just general tips on planning well uh for long long trips
1: i love pen and paper and i'll probably overthink things but i'll sit down and break stuff into categories like these are the clothes i need these are the accessories i need if it's camera gear make a list and i'll just visualize myself in that environment thinking of man what could come at me what could i need And keep going through. And then I try to cull it down. Because I always try to pack as little as I can for something. So, Mm -hmm. like, for example, this past trip, I took a lightweight vest because they were going to be questionable cool in the evenings. And thought, man, I could bring a fleece because it's supposed to be like 55, 60 in the morning. Hey, I'm going to bring this rain jacket. Super lightweight. But guess what? When it's all zippered up and the vents are closed, it packs a lot of heat. So, I've got a little vest and I've got that zippered over the top. I was thinking, man, maybe I'm wet and the wind's blowing about 20 miles an hour. We pedaled into a headwind. Just rethought. I could cut out two items out of there because of that. And Hmm. because I just write it down and think and probably overthink it. Uh, So, that's my advice. When you're going out there, consider what's essential for sure. Like, if you're going to be out at night, have a headlamp, Um, bring some. You know, safety matches or something, if you think you'll get stuck out there, maybe a whistle, even silly stuff like that that you can pack into a little kit. I would rather have, and a knife, I would rather have things that if I really got stuck or got in a bad pinch, I could get by on for a little while versus being out there and just feeling that you're at a loss. Like, man, mm. those things aren't going to weigh you down, you know. I'm not bringing a chainsaw, but... Yeah. <laughs> You know, think of basic survival stuff and even in less than that, even if a day going duck hunting just what things would I need in here that I'm not going to be able, like, if I don't bring it, it could be a mess. Like whether it's a multi-tool, you know, you get a shell stuck in the gun or you can't get a choke tube out. Like, man, those things make a world of difference. Oh, That's
0: good. Yeah, that's super helpful. My wife is a very diligent notepad, pen and paper, checklist off rewrite list, <laughs> you know, like she's always rewriting the list so that it looks the way she wants. But no, I think that's great advice. And lots of listeners, um, definitely, you know, definitely could take a lot out of that. Another question I had was, so your Instagram name is abstract conformity. Is there a is there a meaning behind that? Why you chose that?
1: Yeah, it came about, I think, when I went through high school. You know, I played varsity football, you know, athlete, did all that stuff, quote unquote. You know, I got to run the roost and do what I wanted and, you know, wear certain brands. And I feel that I was looking back on it thinking, man, that's always really conformist in, in most mainstream, but I always tended to venture out. I would mm-hmm. find maybe music that was a little bit different. It just sparked my curiosity just the, and also i think i just carry that forward going on that i've always i conform to certain boxes like society says i need to do this because you can't just be a total out there you can't but for me it just doesn't work right so mm-hmm. i conform to things but i like to put my own twist on it so mm-hmm. that's where abstract conformity comes it's pretty much just being uh be unapologetically yourself in short
0: oh, that's good um Another kind of question back to, you know, you, you obviously captain a very large vessel, and and maybe the big picture of the principles work really similar to smaller vessels. Um, but certainly, you know, if you navigate a 20-foot Carolina skiff, you're not ready to hop on a, <laughs> you know, 200,000-ton vessel.
1: <laughs> a little different. Vessel
0: and start a, a little different, right? But just across the, the board, you know, you ha- you've had to – you've spent your career – learning how to, you know, navigate vessels really well, what tips can you give boaters on how to improve their
1: navigation skills? Speed kills and power saves. So, I mean, you could think of just like watching those qualified captain videos and people just butchering stuff. First of all, if you don't know where you're going, maybe you should just stop and think about it, right? Like water's not deep everywhere. Uh, so mm-hmm. how much water is your boat draft? And what kind of water are you going to try to get across? Hey, there's a good one. When you're coming into things, you know, again, having power, like just like a gas pedal on a car, being able to accelerate and push through a turn is a lot better than trying it at a high speed and flying around. Same thing. If you come into a dock too hot, the only way, like boats are floating, so they carry momentum. The only way out of it is to stop that momentum and now reverse that force. If you're coming in fast, it's going to take a lot of power. If you're coming in slow, it's a lot easier to just bump engines ahead and the stern than to come mm-hmm. flying at it and think you're just going to power down and nail it. I would save that for the professionals. Build up to it.
0: Yeah. No, that's. I think that's. Uh, that's that's really helpful. You know, speed kills. It power saves. So also when you you know I've seen guys too. Uh, you know, in a you know at a boat ramp or whatever. And it's like, you know, somebody else is doing something wrong and they have to accelerate to get out of the way, you know. And so if they didn't, if, you know, little things too, like my dad taught me to always keep my motor on, you know, always be ready to, you know, maneuver, you know, because if you cut your motor and then now you need to get out of something, you know, now you got to turn your motor on. Now you got to, you know, you just, you know, those little tiny little things can all add up to, you know, getting you, keeping you off of the qualified captain, which I think is, you know, all of our, <laughs> the, all of our, uh, our goals and ambitions, right. <laughs> in, in life. Yeah. <clears throat> and, you know, you had mentioned, <clears throat> you had mentioned, uh, you know, the Suez canal and that's, that's been like all, you know, everybody's been talking about the, the blockage, you know, and, uh, and, you know, all of a sudden, like your world kind of that you live in and you've lived in for over a decade has now hit the, the media. And now everybody's talking about it and what's happened and what they should do. Could you just give us like a brief synopsis of what happened and how it's got to get resolved?
1: Yeah. So like right, 90% of the world's uh, commerce moves around by ship. But it takes something drastic like that for people to open their eyes and realize that the ships are moving everything. You know, I don't have all the firsthand details, obviously. I've just seen some reports. But what it looks like is that he just, real big ship, displaces a ton of water, came into a narrow waterway, may have been fighting wind, and he had speed. Speed ultimately killed that thing. If you saw they were doing like 13 knots, I mean, mm-hmm. I think their speed is like 8 to 9. They don't like to transit above in that channel, so you imagine doing 13. He was hauling. And force equals mass times acceleration. I mean, he pushed water against the bank. You'll see him a couple times. He, I think he he runs off the bank once or twice, three times. Eventually, it's like the blob. He compressed water, and the water finally said enough. It sheared that thing off. It went running to starboard, and where everybody found out about it was when it was plugged up, you know, at a 45-degree yeah. angle. Uh, and then, <laughs> you know, the days endured of that. And the only way out is they ended up digging everything around it, you know, dredging so that, it, cause it wasn't floating anymore, right? It was wedged bow and stern and they dug and dug and dug and then finally pulled it out and got it floating. And she's still floating, but she's still stuck there in, in Egypt. I saw just yesterday, they're going to let a bunch of the crew members get off that their contracts have expired, do crew change. But the Egyptians are still holding it for ransom. They went somewhere upwards of $900 million claiming that's, all the damage they did, which is a joke, that whole outfit's a joke. So, luckily, yeah. they're letting the humanitarian aspect kick in, you know, not keeping those poor guys and go- girls over there stuck on the ship. Yeah. Wow. What
0: that has definitely been uh, eye-opening, I think, to a lot of people. That you know, we just, you, you know, you, you're maybe you're on the shore somewhere and you look out and you're like, man, that's a huge boat, you know, and that's about for most people as far as they think about it, yeah. until something like you know this happens. Yeah, exactly. And then they're all experts. You know, they're like, here's, (laughs) look, Uh, okay, you know.
1: That was the worst. I mean, it all started as a joke for me because what I was reading was a joke. Uh, And the bigger picture was going, hey, do you see how bad this media butchers something so simple? They didn't, Yeah, I mean, they don't need to reach out to that many people. Like one person could have curbed so many of their ignorant comments. And it just makes me laugh, but at the same time makes me go, you see how bad they butchered that? Like, so don't get up and just read this, you know, like a sheep, because everything else mm-hmm. they're talking about is probably butchered. Like, I started getting messages from people, special forces guys, you know, lots of military people. Like, it kills me to see any article about military activity across it. They always butcher it. So, mm-hmm. you know, just like every story they do, whether it's some tabloid thing or something this pivotal, like the Suez Canal come to find out most of them do pretty weak journalism and so (laughs) yeah that's why I that's no
0: shock to a lot of the listeners but yeah something so simple that you know is not necessarily doesn't have to be politically motivated you could just report it and it'd be interesting enough you know they they can't get it right exactly yeah My, my last question is um and obviously we could record several you know podcast cuz we didn't even get a chance to really scrape into the surface of all the different like hunting background kind of things that you've been into um but my last my last question is um you know with a lot of young people who are right at the beginning of their career maybe somebody who's thinking about making a shift and they want to go out and they want to do photography they want to travel see the world they want to hunt more fish more what advice would you give them
1: man on this last camping trip one of the guys we had a great conversation and he made the whole point that he backpacked around a bunch when he was younger and we we're both saying you don't really run into Americans like when you're staying in hostels and and off the grid places, but yet there's tons and tons of Europeans and tons of Australians. And what you mentioned earlier that people feel this like draw that as soon as I get out of college or as soon as I finish school, I've got to get hit this box and I've got to do that because if, if I don't, society will just run off without me. And you realize that, hey, the rest of the world takes advantage of it. They go out and they live for a year or two. And it worked. Like, most of these people end up doing stuff and, and moving forward in their own careers. And it was taking the blocks down, all those doubts that you had, and go do it. Find that one trip, that one little excursion you want to try out. Write down your list of things why you you shouldn't go do it and then fold it, put it away, and go do it.
0: Hmm. That's great advice, man. Thanks so much for hanging out and giving us some time on the podcast today. And uh, it was really just interesting to have a totally different
1: perspective just from your background. Yeah, thanks so much, Hunter. It was fun.
0: Thanks again for listening to The Captain's Collective please help us out by leaving a review on iTunes and sharing this podcast. We hope that you enjoy. This is the Captain's Collective.